Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Bob Keeling on the history of Florida's classic rock guitarists, including Tom Petty and Mike Campbell. And to think that was the beginning of an almost 50-year partnership between those two is pretty amazing. We'll discuss the Johns Committee. A state equivalent of the infamous McCarthy Committee was provided with broad powers to investigate individuals and groups deemed subversive. And the Reddick Presbyterian Church. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Bob Keeling has written books about the history of popular culture in Florida, including Elvis Ignited, The Rise of an Icon in Florida, and Calling Me Home, Graham Parsons and the Roots of Country Rock. Keeling has an article in the current issue of the Florida Humanities Magazine Forum called State of Rock. Keeling writes about eight classic rock guitarists in four bands who all have strong ties to Florida. He begins with Dwayne Allman and Dickie Betts from the Allman Brothers Band. Very deep ties to Florida. I would argue more so than Macon, Georgia. Especially, uh, you know, Dwayne and and his brother came with their mother to uh, Mama A, they like to call her. They came to Daytona Beach Shores after their father was murdered. And um, she was a tough lady who raised her sons. And, uh, you know, let's, let's just call it like it is, especially Dwayne. They were a couple of hell raisers. But they, you know, they grew up in Daytona Beach Shores in the late 50s and into the 60s. And Dwayne especially was just profoundly influenced by the blues, you know, B.B. King and uh, later playing uh, integrated shows with Floyd Miles in Daytona Beach, which was way ahead of its time. Greg started out on the guitar as well and then moved to keyboards and just had this uncommonly soulful voice. As for Dickie Betts growing up in West Palm Beach, here's another person who his influence and contributions to the Allman Brothers Band cannot be overstated, especially after Dwayne's untimely and tragic death in 1971. I mean, Dickie really filled the void, not only with his with his inspired playing, but also with his songwriting with uh, Ramblin' Man, which is arguably their best and most successful single. That's Dickie Betts bringing in this country-infused influence into the band. I, I think he really saved them when everybody else was just in, in deep grief and, and rudderless and kept the the band on track to the iconic confederation that they ended up becoming. Bob Keeling was instrumental in getting an historic marker placed in front of the Gray House in Jacksonville's Riverside District, the first place that the Allman Brothers played as a band in March 1969. 
Dennis Price, the gentleman who owns the house, was uh, just very generous in, in recognizing the historic import. And his wife, Mildred, actually told me about a time that uh, Dwayne Allman met her and decided she'd be somebody he'd like to date and was, uh, you know, laying the lines on her and all of that stuff. So, I mean, you, they have this wonderful background and they've turned the house into basically a de facto shrine to the Allman brothers. It was pretty moving, number one, to be in the place where, you know, Greg said the song Whippin' Post came to him in the middle of the night. And then the day of the unveiling, the historic marker unveiling three years ago, we've got it all wrapped up and it's this impressive thing. And there's a lot of people around. And then somebody whispers to me, you know what? I don't know if you can see him or not, but sitting on the wall down a ways is uh, Derek Trucks. And uh, of course, that's Butch Truck's nephew, the fantastic guitarist who still calls Jacksonville home. So I kind of sauntered over and asked him if he would help us unveil the statue. And he was kind enough to do that. And afterward, we gave him a tour of the house. And uh, that was really nice. It was just like bringing it full circle to have him there. And it made it even more special. The Eagles formed in 1971 in California, but two of their key members, Bernie Ledden and Don Felder, were from Florida. Bernie relocated with his family. His father was a college professor who relocated to the University of Florida in uh, the early 60s. And that's where uh, Bernie and Don became friends. Um, they worked at uh, the same music store up there, and um, they joined a garage band together. And while the Beatles were hitting, they decided to call it the Mondi Quintet because they thought it sounded British. So these guys became friendly on Florida's very furtive garage band, youth center circuit, and Bernie actually did military duty. He was he was called to to serve. So he went out to California in the later on in the 60s. And he just seemed to be everywhere. He was in all of these different bands like uh, Hearts and Flowers. And he was on and off with Linda Ronstadt's backup band. He joined the Flying Burrito Brothers with another iconic Floridian, Graham Parsons. And then finally, um, they decided to go off on their own, and Linda Ronstadt gave her blessing, and they started out as the Eagles were definitely a country rock band at the beginning, and you heard that, you know, with Bernie's influence, sometimes playing banjo on stage, but then they slowly started evolving into a true arena rock band, and that's when Bernie passed the torch to his old buddy Don from Gainesville, and then they had this amazing dual guitar attack with Don Felder and Joe Walsh and uh, just went on to huge fame and fortune. Gary Rosington and Alan Collins were founding members of the Florida band Leonard Skinner in 1973. Bob Keeling. Grew up on the rough and tumble streets of uh, West Jacksonville. And of course, when you mention Leonard Skinner, you got to talk about Ronnie Van Zant. And what's interesting is, is Ronnie was also very profoundly moved by the British invasion. And I actually talked to a guy who grew up with him, and he told me this wonderful, vivid story of riding up to the Coliseum there in Jacksonville and Ronnie's red Mustang 
to see the Rolling Stones in 1965. And this was during the same part of the tour, pretty much the same week that Keith said the song Satisfaction came to him in a dream in Clearwater, which is so interesting. And the guy I talked to said, you could see how moved Ronnie was by seeing the Stones. And um, also, you know, Gary has been quoted as saying that the Beatles were a huge influence as well. And, and that, that seems to be the commonality is the influence of the Beatles on all of these bands that yes, we could be a collective and no, we don't have to look like Elvis. And yes, we can write our own songs. And, and Skinner was the same way. And it was great to see the video of, of the band after they'd achieved success, opening up for the Rolling Stones. At, I believe it was Nebworth, just this monster show in the mid 70s. And the Stones have this tongue that's going out from the stage and they've laid down the law and said, none of you other bands should venture out on this tongue. And so what does Ronnie do? He takes his lead guitarist right down onto the tongue and, and they're playing Freebird and just driving the crowd crazy. But um, you had to think that was only about 10 years after he'd seen them in Jacksonville. So Skinner went a long way fast. Following a plane crash in 1977, surviving members of Leonard Skinner eventually reformed with Ronnie Van Sant's brother Johnny taking over as lead vocalist. The final Florida guitar duo highlighted in Bob Keeling's Forum Magazine article is Tom Petty and Mike Campbell from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. It goes back to 1970 when Petty and Mike Campbell met each other. You know, Mike was a skinny, shy UF student, and Tom had been since the early 60s, mid-60s in a various garage bands with Tom Ledden, who was Bernie's brother. And finally, after seeing the Allman Brothers one day in 69 and seeing what a formidable group this was, writing their own songs and music, they decided, okay, we need to take that step forward. And that's how Mud Crutch was formed in this dilapidated farmhouse in Alachua County. And, and actually, the day Petty and Mike Campbell met, Tom was out there to audition a drummer named Randall Marsh. And they were like, hey, you know, Mike, come on out. You know, Mike's back, this bookish guy kind of shyly, you know, reading a book and not wanting to come out. And he finally did. He was coaxed into the room and had this cheap guitar that Petty loved to tell the stories about that a Japanese guitar that Mike, I think, paid a dollar for. And it always got a laugh from the crowd. But then Campbell ripped into Johnny B. Good and they were like, okay, this guy is something else. And to think, that was the beginning of an almost 50-year partnership between those two. It's pretty amazing. The Heartbreakers have a long list of hit songs, but Tom Petty and Mike Campbell didn't forget their Florida roots. They reunited and recorded with their first garage band, Mud Crutch. I talked to Tom Ledden, who was best friends with Petty and was in Mud Crutch and then left in the early 70s to pursue his own dreams. And, you know, he's one of these guys who was flying pretty close to the sun and then took a turn and fate just had other plans. Well, you know, Tom said that he'd always remain friendly with Petty and never really asked anything of him. And I think Petty appreciated his loyalty. And, and one day, Tom, Tom Ledden tells this great story. He's, he's coming back from the grocery store. He lives in Nashville and he gets this cell phone call. And, and the guy on the other end says, hey, Tom, it's Tom. Tom who? Tom Petty. And Ledden won't believe him. 
And finally, Petty tells him, I'm going to reform Mud Crutch. And, and Tom Ledden told me it was as if a bolt of lightning had struck him from the top of his head all the way down to his shoes. It's just, it's an amazing thing to think somebody that successful would regress in their career to restart their garage band. And it was hugely successful. And, and not only did Tom Ledden get to live out his rock star dreams in that group, Randall Marsh did too, playing the drums. So it was like, Tom doubled back for his old friends, and it was an incredibly generous thing, and it was a successful musical venture. Bob Keeling is currently working on a book about the Beatles in Florida in 1964. The iconic band performed on the Ed Sullivan Show from the Deauville Hotel in Miami. Historic preservationists, including Bob Keeling, have been fighting to save the Deauville, but a judge recently ruled that the hotel owners could demolish the historic structure. Look at the low-slung part of this historic property, which is the ballroom and the very stage where the Beatles played, Diana Ross and the Supremes, and JFK at the height of Camelot spoke there. There is no safety hazard in pumping the brakes and seeing if the stage cannot be salvaged. As a matter of fact, I've been in touch with the officials with Hard Rock, you know, the great collectors of so much ephemera of rock and roll worldwide. They absolutely want that stage. And I would call upon the judge, the owners, all of the decision makers to give Hard Rock the opportunity to go in and salvage that historic part of South Beach music history. It's the right thing to do. Bob Keeling's new book on the Beatles in Florida in 1964 is scheduled for release by the end of the year. His article on Florida's classic rock guitarists is in the current issue of the Florida Humanities Forum magazine. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org, where you can watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, in the 1950s, Florida politicians targeted LGBTQ teachers and students at state universities. Historians today have been looking at what was known as the Johns Committee. In 2014, the Florida Historical Quarterly published a somewhat unusual article that combined a historiographic essay with reviews of two books and a documentary film. The focus of the combined essay and reviews was the seven-member Florida Legislative Investigative Committee established in 1956. A state equivalent of the infamous McCarthy Committee, the FLIC was provided with broad powers to investigate individuals and groups deemed subversive. The chair of the committee, State Senator Charlie E. Johns, became so identified with the work of the committee that most people called it the Johns Committee. 
initially designed to thwart the implementation of the Brown v. Board of Education judgment by the U.S. Supreme Court, the committee focused on the work of the NAACP and other civil rights organizations. After a brief foray into the hunt for communists, by 1959, the committee had refocused its attention on identifying and removing gay and lesbian teachers in the Florida education system. Questioned without legal representation by the committee, teachers and students were threatened with public exposure and badgered into leaving their profession or their academic studies. Despite growing concerns about the activities of the committee, it continued its work until 1965. The article provides readers with insight into how historians work and an understanding of the history of the committee. Connie, as attitudes toward the LGBTQ community are evolving, historians have become increasingly interested in the history of the community. How are historians approaching this work? The article written by Judith Poucher shows us how access to new sources, the mentoring of graduate theses, and the historiographic dialogues between scholars produce a new body of scholarship. Access to primary sources is critical in the production of scholarship, and the study of the Johns Committee is illustrative of the problems historians encounter. The papers of the Johns Committee were sealed until 1993 when a push by a University of South Florida archivist and local legislators made the work of the committee available for research. Both USF and the University of Florida archives soon acquired collections of papers by university presidents and administrators, student newspapers, local branches of the American Association of University Professors, and the NAACP. The State Archives of Florida added collections of the correspondence of Governor Leroy Collins and Charlie Johns, as well as the Journal of the Senate. As access expanded, the volume of scholarship grew. An essay by Stephen F. Lawson in 1989 and two graduate theses written under his direction provided the foundation for the early scholarship on the Johns Committee activities. These sources continue to be cited as indication of their importance to the field. In 1999, Stacy Brockman completed a dissertation at the University of North Carolina titled Anti-Communism and the Politics of Sex and Race in Florida, 1954 to 1965. Brockman's work explored the use of the Cold War term subversive to encompass not only communists but homosexuals and civil rights activists. In 2003 and 2006, Judith Poucher published an essay in a book edited by Jack E. Davis and Carrie Fredrickson and an article in the Florida Historical Quarterly on the activities of Ruth Perry, a civil rights activist and journalist in Miami who had attracted the attention of the committee. This biographical approach to those targeted by the Johns Committee added a new dimension to the growing scholarship. Also in 2006, the FHQ published an article by Karen Graves on actions of the local American Association of University Women in reaction to the Johns Committee investigation of the University of South Florida. Graves built on her insights in the FHQ article and a second one in the journal Educational Studies to produce an important book-length study 
in 2009 titled, And They Were Wonderful Teachers, Florida's Purge of Gay and Lesbian Teachers. This first and second outpouring of scholarship led to the third round of analysis in 2011, 2012, and 2014. Connie, how is this new third round of scholarship different? Each historian builds on the work of previous scholars to ask new questions about the past, adopt new methodologies for presenting their work, and arrive at new interpretations. Robert Casanello and Lisa Mills, professors in history and film at the University of Central Florida, incorporated the study of the Johns Committee into their respective classes to produce an award-winning documentary film entitled The Committee. After setting up the circumstances that created the Johns Committee, the film focuses on the stories of a UF student and an FSU student who underwent interrogation by the committee, as well as a UF campus police officer who brought students in for questioning. Intended for young adults, the film introduces the history of the Johns Committee in a scholarly but sympathetic format accessible to a broad audience. Stacy Brockman's book, Communists and Perverts Under the Palms, The Johns Committee in Florida, 1956 to 1965, was published in 2012 by University Press of Florida. In the words of the reviewer, Brockman distinguishes her work from other scholarship on the FLIC by approaching the evidence with an emphasis on the committee's perspective. Her goal is to understand the committee's agenda and its supporters' view of a changing world order in order to explain why its mission resonated during and beyond its lifetime. Her analysis highlights the centrality of sexuality in the volatile political landscape regarding other 20th century social issues, desegregation, civil rights, juvenile delinquency, and obscenity. Judith Poucher's 2014 book, State of Defiance, Challenging the Johns Committee Assault on Civil Liberties, continues her focus on scholarly biography with chapters on five individuals, Virgil Hawkins, Ruth Perry, Sig Dietrich, Gigi Mock, and Margaret Fisher, to tell the story of those who survived and thrived following their encounters with the Johns Committee. This article does not simply tell a story. Rather, it provides an outline of a specific scholarship over three generations, a first generation that provided the narrative and the sources, a second generation that focused on the NAACP, K-12 teachers, and resistance to the Johns Committee, and a third generation that broadened the audience through new technologies, placed the Johns Committee in the context of the Cold War, and provided a context for those who triumphed despite the abuses by the committee. In outlining the three generations of scholarship, the article also provides a potential trajectory for the future. An important history. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker takes us to an endangered church in Reddick, Florida. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation's annual 11 to Save list brings attention to the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. 
The Florida Trust included Reddick Presbyterian Church in Marion County on their annual 11 to Save list. Architectural historian and historic preservationist Laura Lee Corbett told me more about Reddick Presbyterian Church in Reddick, Florida, built in 1887 on the property of George and Callie Reddick. Reddick, Florida is a very small town in um, Marion County. It's less than 600 people, and it was developed because of the citrus industry. And Mr. Reddick, for whom the town was named after, deeded land over to the railroad company to bring the railroad in because they were having trouble uh, shipping the citrus to locations without it going bad. It was just sitting around too long. So they got a railroad that would go between Gainesville and Ocala, and the deal was that there would be a stop in Reddit. This is one of the um, structures that's kind of affiliated with that time period because the railroad stop was platted in 1882 and they organized the church just two years later and then constructed the current um, edifice that you see today that's endangered in 1887. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation accepts nominations from the public for their annual 11 to Save list. Nominations are considered each May and the 11 to Save list is announced in July. I asked Laura Lee Corbett why she decided to nominate Reddick Presbyterian Church for inclusion on the list. What brought my attention to the structure is um, my family was doing a COVID getaway for Thanksgiving about a year and a half ago, and it's on a beautiful street, beautiful canopied streets in Reddick. And I'm cruising down on the bicycle and I see this neat church and I'm, I'm Presbyterian myself and I was looking forward to going to church that Sunday. And then I realized it was no longer, the congregation had disbanded. So I ironically met a member of the, a former member of the Presbyterian church at the historic Methodist church that is right next door. And she told me the plight of how their congregation had dwindled down to about 10 people. And so they were working with the presbytery to decide the fate of the structure, which is vacant right now and apparently has some potential structural issues. The irony is that this church is in its original location, which would make it eligible for the National Register of Historic Places. The Methodist Church next door is in far better shape and has an active congregation, but was actually moved to that site. So that would make it not eligible for listing on the National Register. For over a century, the Reddick Presbyterian Church served as a vital part of the town's religious and social life. Recognizing it as one of the most endangered historic properties in Florida also helps bring attention to other historic churches in the state that are in need of preservation assistance. I work with a lot of churches, and this is a plight not just of Reddick or the Presbyterians, but um, really churches throughout the state as they have aging congregations. They've been dealing with COVID, meeting in person, et cetera, and to have these historic structures that they're kind of seemingly burdened with is an area of concern. And I'd, I'd like to see more kind of study and on this topic and ways that we could help really all houses of faith that are um, saddled with historic structures that they don't know how to continue to care for. The 11 to save list, as you've probably seen, reflects different situations of plight for historic structures. They're geographically spread out across the state, and they also kind of reflect different periods of histories and styles of architecture. And this, to me, just reflects old Florida. This is a, just a fairly simple frame vernacular Victorian church. It's not big. It's not flashy. But I think sometimes these seemingly plain structures, if you will, sometimes have the biggest stories to tell. 
And I just thought this little town has something that reflects its origins, and that would be in this church. To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and the 11 to Save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers. Please join us right here again next week and find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.